0: 7654321. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this, you crazy mother.
1: Welcome to the Dead Pundits
2: Society. Now, here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. This week, I've got a very special guest. Joining me on the program is Delegate Lee Carter. Lee was just recently sworn in to the Virginia House of Delegates. He'll be representing Virginia's 50th district as the first open socialist candidate in the state of Virginia in the last 100 years. So I'm going to talk to him about what it means to govern from the radical left. We're going to talk about his legislative agenda, so stay tuned. You folks are not going to want to miss this really fascinating discussion with Delegate Lee Carter. Stay tuned. This beautiful and haunting song, if you don't recognize it, is called Bread and Roses. It was popularized during the 1912 Lawrence Textile Strike, which was waged by primarily women textile workers in the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts. The slogan Bread and Roses was so powerful because it connects the needs of the masses with the socialist movement, with the movement for working class power, in a very meaningful and pragmatic sort of way. My guest this week, Delegate Lee Carter, won a campaign... On that very basis, making a contemporary argument that socialism is not something that lives in the past. It's not something that lives in textbooks. But it directly relates to the needs of the masses in society. The majority of people need bread. The majority of people need health care. The majority of people need education for themselves and for their children. They need job security. They need unions. And Lee Carter won against all odds promising those very things, and so I wanted to bring him on the show to ask him exactly how does an open socialist govern at the helm of the capitalist state, particularly as a Democrat in a state like Virginia, which even, you know, the Democrats even here are notoriously mainstream and neoliberal. Some of you will recall that Tim Kaine, Hillary Clinton's running mate, was formerly a Virginia governor. As a lifelong Virginian myself, with a couple hiatuses elsewhere, I can tell you He's in for a real treat and he knows it. But he's forging some inspiring leadership. I really enjoyed this interview. I think you all will too. I'll leave it there. Just my pitch really quickly before we get to the interview. You're not going to get this kind of coverage. You're not going to get these kind of interviews from the mainstream. So if you like what you hear on Dead Pundits Society, I really encourage you to support the new left agenda. Head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at $5 or $8 a month or more if you can afford it. I'd really appreciate it. We want to expand our operations in 2018. At some point, I'd like to produce video, which is a very ambitious kind of a task. We're going to need some funds to do that. So if you can support the agenda, you'll get some subscriber-only content over on Patreon with B-Sides coming out almost every week. Now, I didn't get the chance to record a B-Side with Delegate Carter. He's a really busy man, but almost every other week, uh, there will be B-Sides, as you will see. And there's hours and hours of bonus content to enjoy once you become a subscriber so for the rest of you who have been living in a hole or perhaps aren't from Virginia or perhaps not even from the United States and aren't familiar with Delegate Carter I'm gonna play you a quick 60-second clip from his campaign this past fall so you too can get to know Virginia Delegate
1: Lee Carter Enjoy. I was motivated to run for office after I got hurt at work in the summer of 2015 When I needed Virginia's government the most, it really wasn't there for me. The systems to protect working people have been steadily eroded over the last 30 or 40 years by corporate interest. Virginia's government is currently in the control of the corporations that have the deepest pockets. When it comes to questions about what Appalachian Power Company or Dominion Power wants to do, they always get their way. I'm running this campaign on a promise to not take a single dime of money from for-profit corporations or industry interest groups. I'm not the sort of person that can stand by and watch thousands of my friends and neighbors be left behind by a system that purports to represent them. We need to make sure that Virginia is a state where everybody can live and work and not have to worry about where their next meal is coming from, how they're going to pay the rent, and whether they're one injury or illness away from disaster. My name is Lee Carter, and I'm the Democratic Party's nominee for the 50th District in the Virginia House of
2: Delegates. Welcome back to the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on the program, of have a very special guest this week, Lee Carter, who is the incoming delegate for the 50th District in the state of Virginia. Lee, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Pundit Society. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I'm I'm very pleased to talk to you. You've done the podcast circuit. You've done the independent media and the mainstream media circuit. You're getting a lot of favorable press. Uh, So let's start off. Tell us just a a brief background, a brief history of Lee Carter, who you are, where you came from and how you got into office. And then we'll move on to more substantive uh, discussions about policies and strategies moving forward.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Did five years on active duty, uh, deployed twice, including once to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. Uh, got out of the Marine Corps, moved up to Northern Virginia for work, and uh, you know worked as an electronics repairman for a few years and got hurt on the job, and that's what actually pushed me into politics uh, because you know I, I got treated horribly not only by my former employer but also. By the Virginia workers' compensation system. I saw firsthand how broken it is uh, and how the systems that are supposed to protect working people have been eroded by corporate interest over the last 30 or 40 years. So, uh, you know, I'm not the sort of person that can sit idly by and watch thousands of people get left behind. So I decided to step forward and run for something and fix this.
2: Excellent. So you were part, uh, an integral part, I would say, of the wave of Democratic Socialists of America endorsed. Uh, candidates who were swept into office across the country in November. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your strategy there. Uh, I know DSA members knocked on doors relentlessly. You were out there kissing babies and talking to your constituents in a really uh, meaningful and and authentic way. Uh, Tell us exactly what you think the keys uh, to your success were in this campaign. I mean, you won against all odds. You took down the former majority whip. Uh, Who for those who are unfamiliar with American uh, state politics, I mean, I would I would say whips are typically uh, very well funded, very influential in their uh, state capitals. uh, And and you were able to take him down almost like a giant killer, like a David versus Goliath tale. So what do you think was really integral to your success there?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, like you said, he's the majority whip uh, of the Virginia Republican Party uh which means that he was you know third in command of House Republicans and this is this is a state party that has uh historically had you know an iron grip on the state house. They had a, a sixty six to thirty four majority uh coming into this year and it only takes sixty seven votes to override a governor's veto. So um you know he was third in command of an of a, a political machine that had uh, you know, basically unlimited financial resources and uh, unlimited control over the state government. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that we took him down was really just getting back to basics. Went out there and, uh, you know, I talked about making life better for working people. I talked about making Virginia the kind of place where everybody can live and work and not have to worry about how they're going to put food on the table, not have to worry about how they're going to pay the rent, not have to worry about whether they can afford to see a doctor, uh, not have to worry about whether they're going to be discriminated against based on who they love or who they were born to be. Uh, and, you know, I just took that message straight to people where they were. Uh, we knocked on tens of thousands of doors uh, over the course of the campaign. I mean, we knocked on about 20,000 doors just in the final weekend alone. Uh, And that was because I put together a coalition of, you know, not only the Democratic Socialists of America, but also a lot of groups that traditionally make up the base of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the Virginia AFL-CIO, uh, the Sierra Club, Let America Vote, which is an anti-gerrymandering group. Um, you know, a lot of the the women's march type groups like Sister District and and uh, Swing Left, you know, groups that are dedicated to taking down Republicans. And, you know, we put that coalition together sort of, in defiance of uh, the state party's leadership. So the relationship that I had was uh, with the Democratic Party was sort of uh, piecemeal. You know, I had different relationships with different levels of the party. Uh, I had a real good relationship with the the local party, you know, the, the county party um, in Prince William and the, and the city party in the city of Manassas. Uh, but when it came to leadership uh, within the Democratic House caucus, it was a uh, – A little more tense, but, um, you know, put that coalition together and had people out there knocking on doors furiously for months on end and uh, just talking about how we're going to make people's lives better. And what do you know when you let people know that they have an opportunity to vote for a better life for themselves and their families, they actually show up.
2: So you trust you trust the people uh, to uh, to know what's good for them in a, in a really uh, important way, I think, and you're connecting back with uh, the D- Democratic Party base. So tell us a little bit more about the coalition that you built, because I think it's a real test case for local candidates, local and state level candidates across the country, uh, who may be facing opposition from the more entrenched mainstream forces inside their state Democratic parties.
1: Yeah, it was. It it was all about, uh, you know, when it came down to to building that coalition, getting those organizations on board. uh, It was all about two things: it was authenticity and walking the walk. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, when I went out there and I talked about making sure that we don't destroy Virginia's environment, um, people believed that I really meant it because, you know, unlike a lot of politicians who say one thing and then do another, I was. Actually, saying no to the money that big corporate polluters want to give to politicians uh, when it comes to um, rights for for everyone. You know, I was out there uh, first and foremost uh, with any you know activist, uh, activist you know demonstrations or, or movements or anything like that, um, fighting for people's rights. Uh, And I didn't make that about the campaign. I was just there because I felt that I needed to be there as a person, not as a a political candidate. Uh, So, you know, when you're out there, you're walking the walk, you're putting your money where your mouth is and and you're talking to these groups uh, that, you know, are are maybe a little bit on edge about whether they want to support someone who's not supported by the party leadership. They're, they're definitely more willing to step out and take a chance on you if they know that you 100% have their back without any reservations.
2: I think that's fantastic. The, the authenticity there shines through in a big way. Uh, I want to compare and contrast and get your take on this. Uh, I am adjacent to your uh, district, actually, here in Northern Virginia. Uh, for those who are across the country, uh, they'll find this relevant in terms of state politics, but I have listeners across the world as well, and so let's make this international. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has electrified the UK Labor Party by pursuing a strategy that sounds very similar to the one that you are pursuing, of course, in his own regional and local context. Uh, he's an authentic man. He's a, he's, a, he's a, He uh, you know, fights for the working class. He's at the demonstrations as an authentic participant. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has recently proclaimed that within the next year, uh, there will be a labor government. There will be a a staunchly left-wing, even socialist uh, government, at the helm of the British capitalist state. And this is going to produce all sorts of of, of difficulties and hurdles and contradictions. But as they say, uh, these are good problems to have. Uh, (laughs) So you find yourself in a similar position, I would say, in the uh, Virginia state legislature here in the coming weeks. Um, Tell me a little bit about your strategy and the coalitions that you hope to build as uh, something of of an outlier uh, but nonetheless, having uh, the, the the core universal interests of your constituents uh, in heart at heart.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the most misused words in politics throughout the world, but especially here in the U.S., is socialism. There's a lot of people that talk about it and don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that talk about it even favorably and don't really know what it means. Uh, but what it really is, is just Uh, It's an umbrella term for uh, any economic philosophies that have two common characteristics. The first is that uh, people who work in an enterprise have democratic control over the way the enterprise is run. Mm -hmm. And the second is that people receive the full value of the work that they do. And, you know, when you've got those two things, when you've got businesses that are owned and operated, you know, one person, one vote by the employees, those businesses are never going to ship their own jobs overseas because it's cheaper. They're never going to work most of their people for poverty wages while an executive makes $60 million a year. Those are things that just aren't going to happen when you, set, uh, when you set up businesses in that way. Mm-hmm. So uh you know what we're seeing with these these movements you know these left-wing political movements um, here in the US just starting but also you know Jeremy Corbyn's you know momentum wing of the labor party over in the UK is we're seeing a focus on those two things we're seeing a focus on uh building A sector of the economy that is immune to outsourcing, that's immune to corporate greed, that's immune to all these things because of the way those enterprises are set up from the start. And, you know, when it comes right down to it, uh, you don't even really have to say the word socialism. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. people really get it, that being in charge of the business where you work is better than not being in charge of the business where you work. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it's a very basic thing. And and when you boil it down to brass tacks like that, when you just say this is about building a sector of the economy where uh, people's jobs aren't going to be outsourced, where people have control over the work that they do, people respond to that regardless of their uh, ideological leanings.
2: That's very reminiscent uh, of the Labour Party in the UK's uh, slogan with Jeremy Corbyn coming out of the Labour Party congr- conference, which was not, you know, uh, full luxury space communism for all, as you may see on Twitter or some other corners of the sectarian left, but rather uh, Corbyn's message is for the many, not the few. I mean, this is just a really strong, powerful, uh, uniting, unifying message. As you say, socialist politics is not a niche uh, interest; it's something that impacts all of us uh, in our direct and material experiences. So it's, it's really exciting to hear you uh, pushing this because I think it's a it's it's a strategy that can win, especially yeah. in some of the more conservative areas. You know, in mm-hmm. quote unquote conservative
1: areas in the U.S. Uh, you know, here in Virginia, we've got a lot of small towns where they had one factory, right? They had, you know, a furniture factory or a paper mill or something. Uh, and then, you know, that factory gets bought out or it gets shut down uh, because a board of directors in New York or Chicago somewhere that's never visited the place decided that it would be cheaper to move their production overseas. And so, you know, even though you yeah, got 12, maybe 15 people in another state somewhere making the decisions It's the people that actually live in that town that are left holding the bag. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the fundamental principle of democracy is that if you're impacted by a decision, you should have a say in that decision. And that's not the way our economy works right now. So, you know, when you when you say we're not going to wait for billionaires to come in and and give us jobs from on high, we're going to build them ourselves. And oh, by the way, it's going to be impossible
2: to ship these jobs overseas in ten years, and people respond to that, right? Right. I mean, you indicate uh, the the Im- importance of expanding uh, democracy, which is essentially what we're talking about here. Uh, one of your influences, that I noticed, that you mentioned in a Jacobin uh, interview with Megan Day, which is really fantastic. I'll include that in the show notes for folks. Uh, you mentioned that uh, one of your influences, Richard Wolff, who's a, 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 a Marxian economist out of the new school and UMass Amherst. And he's uh, really emphasized this notion of, uh, you know, expanding democracy, not only to the voting booth, but, but to the workplace. It sounds like that's something that uh, you're really taking up there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we've gotten a little bit about your own personal biography, your convictions. I think the authenticity there really shines through in an important way. You're a bold defender of the marginalized and oppressed, Uh, Let's talk a little bit about how you navigate this uh, political moment in terms of these kind of minoritarian movements that are emerging that are so central to progressive politics and how you unite that, how you unite that message, say, of Black Lives Matter, of fighting relentlessly for trans people uh, and their rights. Uh, How you unite that with, say, the kind of way in which people uh, talk about the, quote, white working class. Right. Because, I mean, I think you and I both know these are artificial distinctions and the the way to help uh, the marginalized is to 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 give people what they fundamentally need to give them the the respect and the rights uh, uh, both in the workplace, at home and in society. But how do you how do you take that message out on the campaign trail, given that this is such a divisive moment in uh, American mainstream politics?
1: You know, I think a, a lot has been made about the, the white working class as if, um, you know, somehow whiteness is a part of the, the material interests, uh, of the working class of America. And it's just, it's fundamentally just not, that's not the way that, our economy is is impacting people. You know that uh, saying that is a way to divide the working class and distract people away from the fact that you know the the material interests of working people transcend racial and ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. You know, forty percent of uh, of people who would get a pay increase if we increase the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, forty percent of those people are people of color, and sixty percent of them are white. Um, you know, but as a proportion of those populations, it's a bigger impact on people of color. So, right. you know, it has a, it has a bigger impact on communities of color, but it helps more people that are white. But it's, it's not about the racial and ethnic division there. It's about helping those millions of people, regardless of who they are. And, you know, when people's material needs are being met, when people uh, feel like their economic future is secure, they're not going out there and looking for scapegoats. They're not looking for ways to to blame their neighbor and say, oh, you know, you're the reason that the economy is not doing well because you're, you know, category X. Mm -hmm. That's it's not something that that the overwhelming majority of people do when they feel good about their economic future. So this is about uniting the working class and fighting for a better future for all of us, regardless of who we are.
2: Right. I think a lot of people, perhaps even let's say people who are to your right inside the party. Now, on my show, I call that the kind of uh, woke neoliberal center, (laughs) and I use "woke" in scare quotes there because I think these people. uh, Correct me if you think you know if if you disagree. Obviously, uh, we love to disagree and debate on this show as well. But I think there's an element inside, say, the Tom Perez wing of the Democratic of the DNC that holds up in a cynical way certain identities uh, divorced from their material realities. Right. Uh, there's a way in which uh, your uh, fellow Democrat uh, Danica Rehm was held up by Tom Perez, I think, in a way that was slightly cynical, that uh, removed her from her uh, context and her policies that she's pushing for her constituents and, and rather reduced her to an identity category, uh, which I, th- I think is a little bit uh, – it's a, it's a cynical ploy of the, of the Hillary Clinton wing, I would say, of the Democratic Party to wrest control from the left – uh, in 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 a, in a certain way. Do you agree with that assessment? And, and what's your take? And how do you plan to proceed?
1: Well, you know, you mentioned Danica Rome. She's in the next district to the north of me. Uh, mm-hmm. She's a very good friend. I've known her for a very long time. And you know, I was a huge supporter of hers mm-hmm. uh, from the next district over, just because she's good on the issues. Right. You know, she she wasn't going out there and saying, "Hey, this is about." Uh, my gender identity. She was going out there and saying, hey, traffic on Route 28 is horrible mm-hmm. and people are tired of waiting at, at, you know, 14 stoplights or however many it is. Um, and, and they're tired of it taking two hours to get home every day. So, you know, it, it, it's important that voices of, of these marginalized groups are elevated. Right, um, right. But it's also important that that not distract people from the the material issues that are facing people in their communities Mm -hmm. um you know and danica is a perfect example of that you know yeah she's transgender yeah that was historic no she didn't make a huge deal about it Mm -hmm. although a lot of other people did because she had issues in mind that are affecting her constituents Uh, In a massive way. And that was traffic on Route 28. So, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be either or, Uh, you know, we can we can elevate the voices of marginalized communities Mm -hmm. while also focusing on the material needs of uh, every community. We can do both at once.
2: Very well put. And let's move to that then. It seems, let's move to the material needs because it seems that that is the aspect that is so dangerous to the entrenched power. I would say not only in just, uh, you know, in government in general across, but also in, in, the, in the Democratic Party, in a lot of state parties and in the national party. Uh, you yourself uh, made a pledge and followed through uh, to refuse uh, campaign contributions from uh, uh, Dominion Energy, among one in Virginia and other major corporations and government uh, contracted entities. And you took that as a really important step uh, for removing, you know, uh, the control over your policies uh, from from these types of people. Right? The, the Dominion Energy has historically uh, controlled both parties in government in the state of Virginia. And so why, why do you think that the Democrats are so keen on uh, elevating I- the identity of these candidates, but ignoring their material interests? And how do you how do you hope to go beyond that?
1: Yeah, you know, this is this is a very old story. Uh, you know, I, I not only refuse contributions from Dominion, I refuse contributions from all for profit corporations or industry interest groups. Uh, but Dominion is the number one campaign contributor in Virginia. And that is something that goes back generations. I mean, back to the early 1970s. There was a guy named Henry Howell. You know, he was lieutenant governor of Virginia for two years. He ran for governor three times. He got you know 49.5%. Uh, and he had campaign bumper stickers that said, Welcome to Virginia, a wholly owned subsidiary of VEPCO. Now, VEPCO changed their name to Dominion Power and now to Dominion Energy. But their control over the general assembly hasn't changed at all. Um, and you know, this, it just gets back to what I said earlier about walking the walk. Um, you know, when you're, when you're saying that we need to return control of government to the voters rather than to the big corporate interests, you can't say that while you take their money. Uh, Mm -hmm. and if you do try to say that while you're taking their money, nobody's going to believe you. So that's why important – that's why you know, it's, it's so vitally important to actually walk the walk. You know, for, for any candidates out there, um, your campaign will run on a shoestring budget. But that's OK because if people actually believe that you're sincere about what you're talking about, they're going to respond to it much, much better than if you're just bombarding them with mail and TV ads and they see you as just another lying politician.
2: Right, right. Very well said. I think that's a, an important piece of inspiration for, for those who may be thinking about running uh, in the future as progressives or socialists, uh, whether on the Democratic Party uh, ballot or not. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, your staunch defense of Medicare for all. Um, you, you, there was a piece uh, by uh, Zay Gelani and the intercept uh, he, he chose or his editors I should say probably chose the title uh, Medicare expansion is the compromise which is a, <laughs> which is, a, which, is which, a- which is an excellent quote uh, from from a, an interview with you that they d- had done earlier uh, and so what, what what that's referring to is the fact that Virginia governor Ralph North uh, governor-elect Ralph Northam, has recently somewhat distanced himself from the compromise of Medicaid expansion. Um, and this is somewhat reminiscent, I would say, of uh, President Obama's uh, title, I would say. Some on the left have called President Obama the Compromiser-in-Chief. And so what he has been accused or criticized of doing is uh, going to the bargaining table, having already compromised in advance. And then once at the table... You've, of course, you have to compromise again. And so the policy, the piece of uh, legislation, the policy that emerges from that process is a compromise on a compromise on a compromise. And you get something really watered down and uh, untenable and unsustainable like Obamacare, which we see uh, unraveling and being picked apart uh, by Republican vultures in state legislatures across the country. So tell us a little bit about your, your position there and, and how you plan to go into the Virginia state legislature uh, with with guns blazing, so to speak.
1: Yeah, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk about how uh, politics are on this pendulum swing. How you know the the president's party always gets killed in the in the midterms immediately afterwards, and that's because for basically as long as I can remember, people have been voting for change. You know, most people are not ideological. Most people don't identify as Democrats or Republicans. So you know, if people are dissatisfied with the way things are going, they're just going to vote for. Whoever is not there already hmm. So that's why you've got these these Huge swings, you know, you went from 12 years of Republican control Under under Reagan and, and H.W. Uh, Bush To 8 years of Democratic control under Clinton uh, To 8 years of Republican control under W. Bush To 8 years of Democratic control Under Obama to now You know, Donald Trump And it's just because people are just tired Of being ignored And so You know, fundamentally what we need to do is uphold the concerns of people who are saying they want change and actually stand up and change something. Mm -hmm. You know, we we can't continue to keep doing business the way we've been doing business in state legislatures throughout the country because if we do that, then, you know, people are just going to vote for change again the next time they have an opportunity to and if – you're there. Guess what? Getting rid of you is the change. So you know, we saw that in 2008. Uh, people voted overwhelmingly for Barack Obama with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic Congress because he said, "I'm going to stand up to the banks. I'm going to put our economy back in one piece, and I'm going to make sure that everybody can see a doctor." And none of that happened. Right. 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 We we voted for Democrats overwhelmingly. We got the Republican health care plan.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, the Affordable Care Act came out of the Heritage Foundation originally. It was Romney Care in Massachusetts. Is, is that is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, it was it was created in the 90s as an alternative to single payer health care. And it was first implemented at the state level by Mitt Romney. Uh, and so, you know, is it any wonder that when we vote for Democrats and we get the Republican plan, the Democratic Party has a crisis of uh, credibility in, in people's eyes? You know, it's not... That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. People voted for Barack Obama for a reason, and then they didn't get what they were expecting. Mm -hmm. So it's important for those of us on the left to have concrete policy ideas and say, you know, this is our end goal. We're not going to get there right away. It's not going to be immediate. But this is what we're fighting for. This ultimate, you know, this big vision is what we're fighting for. And we're going to take every step we can get towards it. And we can't celebrate uh, watering it down as its own thing. You know, I think there's there's a very real tendency among uh, the more centrist wing of the Democratic Party to think that triangulation is a good thing on its own right. But you know, have the have the courage of your convictions to say, you know what, my policy ideas are good, and it would help people if we implemented them.
2: Right. You would think this triangulation uh, would be uh, dead on arrival at this point in time following the defeat of Hillary Clinton in the general election last year. Catastrophic election of Donald Trump, sweeping the sweeping to power of Republicans, uh, you know, at, at this point in all three uh, branches of, of, of national government. Um, but there are people inside the DNC and just the, the sort of like uh, liberal – Commentariat who are trying desperately to resuscitate this zombified triangulation uh, in the, inside the Democratic Party. So Bill Sher, uh on December 20th wrote this miserable piece, I would say, for Politico. It's called What Will It Take to Beat Trump? The Case for a Generic Democrat. And so in that piece, uh, Bill Sherr argues, Democrats don't need inspiration or revolution to win in 2020. They just need somebody bland and inoffensive, kind of like Doug Jones. So following following the immense popularity of someone like Bernie Sanders, who called for a political revolution, uh, he's polled as the most popular politician in the United States far and away. Uh, What do you make of this kind of uh, uh, assault? On 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 reality by these uh, mainstream neoliberal Democrat types, it is unreal. <laughs> I mean, you
1: know, let's let's even accept the premise, uh, which I don't. But for the sake of argument, hmm. let's accept the premise that somebody bland can beat Donald Trump by just not being anything to anybody. Okay. <laughs> What's that guy going to run on in 2024 when Donald Trump's not there?
2: Mm. I mean, the, the, the argument here in, the, in Bill Sherr's piece is actually that, well, uh, a guy like Jones – uh, a guy like Doug Jones is going to essentially put forward the same policies as a more rabble rousing type of uh, you know left wing Democrat or Democratic socialist would, but he's going to do so more efficiently and successfully because he's not going to uh, you know rouse the suspicion of of the Koch brothers and 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 all that type of thing. I mean, what do you make of that argument? Do you think that these sort of mainstream, milk toast, bland Democrats? Uh, essentially want the same thing as, uh, say, somebody like uh, Lee Carter in the state of Virginia?
1: No, I don't. Um, and, you know, you can see that uh, based on, yeah, you know, not only what they do, but also what they say. You know, when you get, when you get these establishment uh, politicians in, in a candid environment, you know, even someone like Barack Obama has been on camera in interviews laughing about how, You know, if you go back to the 1970s, he'd be a moderate Republican. Mm. So what we've got is a a, a party that is called the Republican Party that is crazy far right. You've got a party that's called the Democratic Party, which is what the Republican Party used to be. And there's really and I mean, this is one of the things that I'm fighting for. There's, There's no major party out there that. Is what the Democratic Party used to be, you know, back in the days of FDR, there's no New Deal Democrats anymore. There's no one who's willing to stand up to corporate interests and say, I am fighting for working people. And if you're in my way, I'm going to bowl you over. Uh We need to get back to that. You know, there's there's one party that works unabashedly for corporate interests. There's one party that works for a compromise between corporate interests and the interests of workers. There is no party that works for working people and working people alone. We have got to bring that back. We've got to get the Democratic Party back to its roots. And until we do that, the Democratic Party is going to continue to be – the most unpopular thing in American politics except for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm.
2: It seems that the, the Democratic Party as it exists now is really hamstrung uh, between uh, a certain kind of progressive rhetoric, uh, the, the uh, temperament of the American people for progressive and even radical and revolutionary political change. And, and yet the fact that their donors and the people who control the message in their party are unwilling to go – in the direction that, uh, that the, the, the people uh, demand, in a sense. And so they're really ha- hamstrung on this. And I think that uh, candidates like yourself can really resuscitate uh, the more progressive elements inside the party. With that being the case, I have two more questions, and I'll let you go. I know you're a busy man, uh, very much in demand these days. Uh, I have to ask this question, being a socialist podcast. You just held up FDR and the New Deal as, as a real uh, triumph of American progressivism and liberalism. What do you say to the socialists out there, not, not in the majority for sure, but, but I think a vocal and intellectual uh, – these folks have a very intellectual a certain kind of a weight to them. Where they would say that the New Deal is not something we should aspire to because in essence it was, it was there to save capitalism. And perhaps we shouldn't save capitalism. Perhaps we need to work to go beyond it. Uh, what do you make of that as a democratic socialist? And, 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 and how do you plan to, to navigate uh, that kind of contradiction?
1: Uh, you know, it's, it's important to recognize that um, there are two parts of my policy agenda. You know, one is building our economy uh, in, in a way that's not controlled by the investors. And the other is in building safety nets for people that uh, so that their material needs are met in the meantime, Mm -hmm. right? So we've got the democratic socialism and we've got the social democracy. And the New Deal was a triumph of social democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, yeah, it didn't go far enough. It didn't address the structural problems. Um, But that doesn't mean that we can't use it as part of our platform. Uh, You know, the the things that were done under the New Deal – uh, were tremendously helpful to millions and millions of Americans. Right. You know, you've got Medicare – well, Medicare came later. Uh, you've got Social Security. You've got unemployment insurance. You've got uh, you know the WPA that directly put 15 million people to work. These are things that we need right now mm-hmm. while we're working towards an economy that's not uh, at the behest of billionaires. Uh, and if we address both at the same time, then we can go beyond this investor-run, investor-owned, tremendously undemocratic economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what it's going to take. You know, you're going to have to do both. If you just stay too esoteric, then it, it, people aren't going to react to it at all. You know, they're just going to think you're you're some crank out there with a 150 year old. Uh, book on economics, right, right, right.
2: Not that there's anything wrong with dusty books. We here at the Dead Pundit Society. Uh, What's that? To, I said we here at the Dead Pundit Society uh, love dusty books, but uh, I'm totally with you in terms of. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's also important to recognize that you know, yeah, the New Deal it gave capitalism sort of a reset button on its own crisis. You know, the the Great Depression people. Um, People were out on the street in massive numbers. People were, you know, standing in bread lines. It was, it was a fundamental collapse of the world economy right. in a way that's, that had not been seen before. And the New Deal was a reset button because it didn't have any, uh, any policies that were aimed at taking control of the economy away from investors, right. away from billionaires. Um, but even still, you know, it was still such a tremendous threat to corporate interests that some of them actually tried to overthrow the U.S. government in response. You know, that's right. anyone that's out there listening, please look up the business plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this was they tried to recruit a Marine Corps general, uh, Smedley Butler, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most decorated Marines of all time. They tried to recruit him to lead uh, a military coup to overthrow the U.S. government. And it didn't work because he said no. And then he went and testified before Congress about it, and nobody went to jail. I mean, it's, it's one of the most bizarre chapters of American history, and it's one of the things that nobody ever talks about because it's been purged from a lot of history books. But it's in the congressional record. It happened
2: right i mean i'm among the first to really interrogate the contradictions of social democracy and democratic socialism in terms of transitioning to a more just and egalitarian form of society but it's just it's just revisionist history i think when these people on the left say that the new deal was not a threat to capital because you're absolutely right to point to that uh, smedley butler affair uh which which is to say it was such a threat to capital that there were elements that were seeking to uh, overturn it uh, in extra legal uh, uh in an extra legal uh, sense so yeah. Uh, I know you've got to run, so let's get. I want to get this final quest, series of questions out really quickly. Uh, you've 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 measured. You've levied some some uh, measured criticism of the Democratic Party, and yet you're going to be working with these people in uh, Richmond, the capital of Virginia. Here, as soon as the legislature goes into session here, and you're sworn in. Uh, how do you foresee that going down do you think that you, your message will be well received by your colleagues in the party and and what kind of initiatives uh, are you taking on uh, you know as you hit the ground running
1: we are in completely uncharted territory here mm-hmm. um i mean i'm i'm the first socialist elected to anything in virginia since 1916 and back then, it was the mayor of a town of 940 people, right? So, uh,
2: you have 85,000 constituents. Is that correct?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I represent 85,000 people in the General Assembly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're in uncharted waters. Um, especially since the house is going to be, you know, maybe 50 50, but if not, it's going to be 51 49 one mm-hmm. way or the other. There's still some recounts out there. Right. Um, and, you know, the the way that we work together is very much up in the air. But, you know, if if we don't find a way to work together to at least do something, then uh, all of us are going to be looking for jobs in 2019. So, um, you know, we've we've got to deliver on making life better for working people. Um, You know, for this year, I'm focused on uh, some things like workers' comp and you know, state-level net neutrality, um, and, and taking on predatory lenders and taking on Dominion Energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe next year uh, we'll be able to get some things that uh, that build that sector of the economy that I was talking about. That's uh, you know immune to uh, outsourcing and immune to the excesses of corporate greed, um, but. You know, we'll see. Uh, I, I guess we'll we'll figure out how we work together when we actually start working together on January tenth.
2: Right, as a poet once wrote, I think someone far more uh, you know uh, poetic than, than myself. Uh, you'll have to make the path by walking it at this point. I mean, that's really true here. You're, you're on the vanguard of something very exciting. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. You've got a really, uh, really great message. You've, you've demonstrated some really bold leadership, like the necessity of, of, of forging your own path. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes against the grain of the mainstream, even inside your own party, uh, you're fearless. You have a military background. I think that, that may, uh, help things somewhat. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, the battlefield and Richmond can can touch the real thing so you but I have to ask let me me put you on the hot seat final question here on dead pundit society what are your fears going forward into into this year's uh, legislative season uh what what keeps Lee Carter up at night uh
1: you know we've seen particularly here in Virginia uh we've seen how far The extreme far right will go, Mm -hmm. you know, especially with with what happened in Charlottesville. Um, And, you know, it's it's important to recognize that socialist politicians are pretty high up on their list. Mm. So, um, you know, what keeps me up at night is literally uh, fear for my own safety. You know, I'm, I'm not doing this because it's comfortable. I'm not doing this because it's fun. I'm doing this because I can't stand by and watch as 750,000 Virginians have no health insurance whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I can't stand by and watch as upwards of a million Virginians live in intergenerational poverty from one generation to the next. I can't stand idly by and watch those things happen.
2: Wow, that took a dark turn. I, I appreciate the candid, uh, authentic approach. I don't—I mean—response. I, mean, I would—I would expect nothing less from a man like yourself. But that's—that's that's heavy. That's some heavy stuff. I expected you to say, "Well, you know, i am am afraid that you know my legislative agenda won't pass." But, but we live in a moment right now where maybe even your own physical uh, safety and well-being is potentially in jeopardy. But, uh whew, heavy stuff, man. That's—it's it's a tough note <laughs> yeah. to end on. But—but you—but you've got a bold style. Um, you're really on the vanguard of something important and, and you know typically I would be nervous about that because the stakes of failure are very high but I gotta tell you man I have a lot of confidence in what you're doing and uh, I just want you to know that we support you here at the Dead Pundit Society and uh, any final parting words about what folks can do to support not only you but candidates like yourself uh, going forward clearly there's going to need to be what Bernie Sanders calls a political uh, grassroots revolution in order to enact anything re- re- remotely resembling an agenda that you uh, advocate. So what do you ask from us in order to help support you while, while you're in office and hold you accountable?
1: You know, you've got to hold people's feet to the fire. Um, you know, uh, elected representatives uh, have to know that there is a consequence for going back on the promises that they make to their constituents. Mm. And that consequence has to be real. It has to be immediate. They have to know that if they choose corporate interests over the interests of their constituents that they're not going to have constituents anymore. Right, right. Um, and, you know, that that comes down to not only you know, blowing up their phone lines and, and lining up in their offices uh, to let them know when you're dissatisfied, but also making sure that there are alternatives. So, you know, get out there and run for office yourself. Um, if you're not happy with the way you're being represented Try to represent yourself better
2: Well said. you know in, in, in closing I expect I brought you on the show because I want to talk about some of the contradictions and pitfalls and and, and dilemmas of, of trying to uh, govern from a left even socialist position when you are at the helm of a capitalist state. I expect you to get into some real nuanced and I expect you to sort of unveil some nuggets and some magical wisdom but the truth is there's no it's not magic. It's just – it sounds like you're fighting and advocating for an agenda that affects a broad swath of people and the daily concerns and uh, you know uh, barriers and that they face uh, in their day-to-day lives. Everyone has to work for a living. Everyone needs health care. Everyone uh, – most many people have concerns about child care and, and schools and, 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 and transportation. And, and so that's a really uh, – it's a really important message I think that when we try to get cute – on the socialist left. We try to get overly fancy. Uh, it's it's a, you have a very back to basic style approach. So I, I, I really do appreciate that. It's uh, it was, it was helpful. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Delegate elect Carter. Uh, thanks so much. We look forward to, uh, you know, your, your legislative agenda in Richmond and uh, you've, you've really set the tone for folks. So, so let's keep this thing going. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that concludes our show, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Dead Pundit Society this week. Thanks again to Delegate Lee Carter. I referred to him as Delegate Elect in the interview, but he has since been sworn in this past week. So, Delegate Carter, thanks again for the interview. I really enjoyed it. He has an inspired vision for a universalist, humanist-socialist project That is pragmatically oriented to providing the things that everyday people need. Socialism for regular ass people. That's the vision. Lee Carter, delegate Lee Carter that is, embodies that vision very well. I was very impressed with the guy. I'd never talked to him before. We communicated briefly to get him on the show. But I got to tell you, we really hit it off and I'm impressed with him. The authenticity is just dripping out of every pore. Uh, He has an inspired vision and we should support him however we can. Uh, he is on Twitter at Carter4VA, Carter the number 4VA. He's very active on Twitter, but not in the extremely online sort of way. Uh, even last week, there was a snow and ice storm up here in Northern Virginia. And he was tweeting out to his constituents detailed information about when their roads would be cleaned off. You know, When it would be safe to go to work. All, all this kind of like just day-to-day information that constituents need to hear from their, from their, the people in, in office, in government. And so that's a really inspired vision for socialism for regular-ass people. And I was really, really honored to have him on the program. I hope you all enjoyed it. We're going to continue this vibe of socialism for regular-ass people all the way through 2018. Head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and join the Dead Pundit Society today in order to support the New Left agenda if you like what we're doing here. I try to bring you a good solid mix of socialism for regular ass people, socialist, uh, you know, uh, politicians, uh, fun and smart fiction writers like Frankie Gaffney, and really heady theoretical stuff, you know, like the Lee Panitch and the Steve Marr and the Adam Hilton interviews. And the labor in the capitalist state series. I try to vary it up here at Dead Pundit Society. I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that you're learning a lot and your uh, political life is enriched by this project. I really want to connect with you. Let's let's talk on social media. Find me at Dead Pundits on Twitter. Like the page on Facebook. Search for Dead Pundit Society, and that'll come up. Let's connect in the new year. Let's talk about building this new left agenda. I know I can be quite cynical at times. I can be highly critical at other times but I am deadly serious about this vision for building a new world and building a new society. And I know that socialism is the answer uh, and a lot of the masses of people will be attracted to it. So keep your chin up folks. 2018 is here. We've got a lot of work to do until next week. Dead pundit. out.
0: As we go marching, marching on numbers.